Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrycats.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today is a day where I am very, very pumped and excited because I am sitting across from Lisa Lampanelli and I'm sitting here at the WP Theater at 76th and Broadway on the Upper West Side where she is starring producing, writing, getting water for people, who knows, doing her own show, the critically acclaimed Stuffed, which is running through Sunday. First of all, before I start, I want to thank all of you. You guys have been amazing. I can't believe how supportive you guys have been. I try to give you a lot of great content that you can share and learn from, and the guests have just been amazing. And today, I can guarantee you will be no exception. Before I sat down, I hugged Lisa Lampanelli. And you know when you hug somebody, sometimes you feel this energy running through you like, oh my God, I think I have to shower. And then you hug somebody, and it's like, ah everything's going to be okay. We're going to have a great time. And that's how you feel when you hug Lisa Lampanelli. If you are out there listening and you have hugged Lisa Lampanelli, chances are you could be (laughs) (laughs) African-American. No, I'm kidding. But I look at Lisa and this is what I want to share with you guys about myself as a manager. I see something in people. I feel like I can shake people's hands and sometimes I know what's going to happen with people or how it's going to happen. And I'm sitting across from somebody who I never gave the opportunity in my mind to think that they could create magic in this business. And I would go to the clubs in New York City, specifically Stand Up New York, which is right around the corner from here at 78th and Broadway. And every time Lisa Lampanelli was on the lineup, she would have the best set of the night. Didn't matter if she was on last in front of 
23 people on a check spot or she was going on fifth at the prime time of the show. Every single show, just complete devastation. Imbombable. I've seen her hundreds of times. I have never seen her bomb. I have never seen her do poorly. I have never seen her not give 100%. Yet I, when I watched her, thought to myself, I don't think this person is doing the kind of material that will work. And the reason being, Lisa Lampanelli was doing something that was sort of, I'd say, stereotypical for the 70s and 80s hosts of comedy clubs all around the country where it's called a spritzer, a person who can seamlessly talk to anybody in the crowd or do a joke and identify a certain ethnicity. No holds barred. It didn't matter if you were gay, straight, fucked armadillos, if you were black, Asian, Indian, Jewish, Italian, you were not safe. And her material centered around the formula and the foundation of taking the premise of an ethnicity or a group of people and then riding that premise as far as she could, as long as she could. It's something I've talked about many times before is comedy is like a wet washcloth. You take the premise, whatever it is. How you doing, sir? The black man in the corner. And then you wring the washcloth once and you tell that first joke. I'm surprised you got here on time, sir. And that's the first joke. And then the water comes out and you think there's no more water in the washcloth. And then you get something. What would you order there, sir? Oh, that's not chicken fingers. Oh, what a surprise. And then you just keep ringing and ringing and ringing. And with the Rolodex in Lisa Lampanelli's brain, she wrung every single concept to where there was not a drop left. And when you thought there was nothing left, her next line, maybe her 13th line on the person would destroy harder than the first line. How many people are as good the 13th time as they are the first time? And it was amazing to see. But as I watched, I thought to myself, because I was working with people like Chappelle, you know, people who were doing more of the written constructive joke. And I watched her and I thought to myself, how can I find people whose material can go on any late night show and how can I take this person with my talent and their talent to the next level? And when I watched Lisa, I thought to myself, I don't think I can be successful. And I don't know if she's going to be able to do what I think that she's capable of doing if she were to make a few adjustments. And I don't think I'm the kind of person to tell somebody to change. I want people to stay in the lane they are and be successful. And throughout her journey, I have always been in touch with her. And I think she'll know and agree. I have always run into her and said, I was wrong. And I have always wanted to hug her. And I have always wanted to embrace her. And this is where I get emotional. I always want to support her. And I always want to praise her. And I'm so, so proud for everything that she does and everything that she's done that has blown people the fuck away. I am at my television or at the taping cheering in the back. 
And I feel no remorse except the fact that I failed as a manager and I didn't see what she saw in herself that she could do in all these different lanes. And this play here at this theater is a tremendous example of what this person was capable of creating that maybe I didn't see based on the kind of comedy that she was doing. And if you look at Lisa Lampanelli and you look at the kind of career she's had, it's just incredible. She took her brand of humor. She branded herself queen of mean. Now, I don't necessarily agree with the queen of mean because when you meet Lisa Lampanelli, the most huggable and lovable person you could ever meet. Throughout that, she parlayed that into roast. And let me tell you something. When you do a roast, everybody on that roast is happy. They're backstage. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Have a good set. There can be only one winner. And I'm looking at the fucking winner. Somebody who they had closed shows over and over and over again. Then you're asked to be the master of ceremonies of a roast. The most important role in the roast you don't get asked that if you're doing a shitty job. So she's parlayed that into specials, albums. She's had development deals and shows that have been put together with Jim Carrey. You think Jim Carrey wants to sit down with any comic? I think there's only one stand-up comedian that he's ever wanted to do a deal with in his entire career, and that's Lisa Lampanelli. And so I think the message here is twofold. Number one, don't be short-sighted. Don't judge a book by its cover because there's always something there. There's layers to everything. And on the other side, use everything you can, every fiber of your body, everything you have creatively in your brain because there's never going to be a situation where you can't do something and challenge yourself and get to the next level. And when I look at the person across from me, I tell you honestly, if you do that, you will have the kind of career that Lisa Lampanelli has. Okay, here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm so excited. We're here with Lisa Lampanelli. And as always, I'm going to give her the introduction that she deserves. So get some popcorn. Sit back. Take some no-dos. And here goes. If Don Rickles were a woman with a slight weight problem and a well-documented fondness for having sex with African-American men, he'd sound an awful lot like comedian Lisa Lampadelli, described as comedy's lovable queen of mean. Born in Trumbull, Connecticut in 1961 to a middle-class Italian family after attending Roman Catholic schools, Lampanelli studied journalism at Syracuse University and Harvard and briefly enjoyed a successful career in the magazine industry, working as a copy editor at Popular Mechanics. As fact checker and first chief researcher for Spy Magazine and was a contributor for Hit Parader and Rolling Stone. Deciding journalism was not for her, she quit and became a party DJ in 1990, finding that she enjoyed entertaining partygoers via the microphone. 
and following a trip to a comedy club, she took a course in improvisation. This led to her first successful stand-up performances in New York City in the early 1990s. Lambanelli's real rise to fame began in 2001, where she made a standout appearance on Comedy Central's Friars Club Roast, and she was invited back in 2002 as the only female comedian invited to roast Chevy Chase at the New York Friars Club Roast, which would air on Comedy Central. After that exposure, Lampanelli soon became one of the few white comedians to perform on BET's Comic View and became a regular guest on Howard Stern's radio show. Lampanelli's first cable stand-up special, The Queen of Mean, aired in 2002, and her first album, Take It Like a Man, tied into another cable special, appeared in 2005, and peaked at number six on the comedy charts. In 2006, Lampanelli made her movie debut alongside fellow comic Larry the Cable Guy in his picture, Larry the Cable Guy Health Inspector, and issued her second album, Dirty Girl. In early 2007, with a simultaneous release of a concert DVD featuring the same material, Dirty Girl reached number four on the charts and was nominated for a Grammy Award for 2007's Best Comedy Album of the Year. Also that year, Maxim Magazine named her Bachelorette of the Year. In 2008, she served as Roastmaster for the Larry the Cable Guy Roast and also performed at Carnegie Hall. She published her first book, a memoir, Chocolate, Please, My Adventures in Food, Fat, and Freaks. In 2009, Lampanelli's other comedy albums, including Long Live the Queen in 2009, with Tough Love following in 2011, and in 2016, was again nominated for a Grammy Award, her second for her album, Back to the Drawing Board. She was a contestant on Celebrity Apprentice 5 with Donald Trump, where she raised $130,000. Lampanelli is currently performing in the world premiere of her off-Broadway play Stuffed at the WP Theater on 76th and Broadway, which explores the complexity of women's relationships to food and body image. You can check it out right here at the WP Theater, 2162 Broadway at 76th Street. Get your tickets, and please welcome my guest today. It's an honor. So excited to have her here with me. Please welcome Lisa Lampanelli. Hey, Barry. <laughs> you missed your fucking shot, huh? No. no, you know what's funny? When you're talking in that cold open about, you know, how you were short-sighted, I think I was too. I think the fact is, when people can't see their own power, that's, we, we each didn't see our own power. I, you couldn't see how you could make my career work, you know, in a way that you thought you knew how. I didn't see that I could do anything but insult comedy. So we were both just acknowledging our limits. And at the time, those limits were what we had. So I don't think that's a bad thing. So I didn't think I could be anything but an insult comic until I got to about five, six years ago when I decided to do a little more, uh, you know, exploring, talking more about me and more about my issues and things like that that resulted in the play and more intimate stand-up. So you have nothing to feel bad about because we, if people just don't know what they're capable of in the long run. I can't believe that it was only five years ago that you thought to yourself, I can do other things. Yeah. No, because I love insult comedy. Like I always said, I'm one of the two or three living insult comics and Rickles is going to die pretty soon. So bye. I'll be one of the only two. So it's funny. Like I just view it as a huge badge of honor because you can't do it unless you're really good. Like you can't be an insult comic unless you're not racist, unless you're not sexist or um, homophobic. You can't do it 
you can't make fun of everybody unless you really love them. So I always thought that was a badge of honor, which it is. But then I'm like, oh, but maybe I can go deeper inside and talk about things that are more important. And then five, six years ago, I was like, okay, now I'm ready. So you're ready when you're ready. That's what I always say. Got it. And so there's a few things that are very rare, and you might disagree with me. What's not rare is a blue comic, a comic who does material that's off color. Right. But what's really rare is the to the hundredth power blue comic, like mm-hmm. a dice clay. Mm-hmm. So I look at insult comedy and the ability to do horrifyingly edgy, dirty comedy as mm-hmm. being the two lanes of comedy that are the most rare. Yeah. Do you right. agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And insult comedy, I think it is rare because you have to have a warm place inside. You have to have a warmth that people can see. Like when you see Rickles, you want him to make fun of you. When uh, people come see me, I'm so grateful because they'll write me beforehand. Hey, we're eight gay guys. Look for us. We're gonna. We <laughs> want you to make fun of us. So I think if you're not a warm person, they're not buying it. And I think with dirty comedy, what's interesting is that those guys, they're likable, but they have the bad boy likable look on their face, not the Rickles and you lovable. Right, like you're not skeeved watching them talk about sex. Like there's some guys who you look at and you go, please never talk about sex, you're <laughs> freaking disgusting. I remember there was this comic years ago, I don't know if he's dead yet, but he was about 400 pounds and he wouldn't talk about ugh, licking you know what. Yeah. And I would be like, please God, don't make me picture that. <laughs> it's just, you kind of got to know what you can get away with in this business. Like Dice knew he could get away with being really edgy and having women still like him and not turn on him. That's the most amazing thing about those extra level, dark, dirty comics like Dice. I mean, there's more women than men that come to see them. Yeah. And it's the most degrading stuff sometimes <laughs> because i think they know it's a parody i think audiences are smarter than we think black people and interracial couples and latinos and believe it or not filipinos for some reason love me i don't know how that happened <laughs> i have one filipino joke but they respond to it i gay men gay women i think they all know that it's a joke that it's a parody of someone racist like I learned from that Rickles album. I never heard the Rickles album, Hello Dummy, until like eight years into my career when people said, oh, you remind me of Rickles. So I'm like, oh, I got to check out this record. used to have that framed on my wall. I do. It's vinyl, right? So he has one joke that I always talk about, which is, thank God for Mexicans or there wouldn't be any filth. (laughs) And I go, that's the perfect model for a joke that you know is so ridiculous that he can't possibly mean it. So if I'm saying to a black guy, um, you know, black guy, it's called a book. Like when we talk about a book, that means the thing the judge throws at you. <laughs> you know, so you know it's so ridiculous that you can't really think every black guy went to jail. You know, so I think you have to be so dumb. You have to create a dumb character like Archie Bunker, like Norman Lear did. So my character, or a Larry the Cable Guy character, you got to create a dumb character, and it takes, I think, brains to create that. You know what's interesting is that I never, ever thought of your character as dumb yeah good well you're smart and if what's fine what's wild is like i think some people get it for the right reasons which i love like yourself or some people get it for the wrong reasons meaning oh she has a she's actually a racist and i'm like how do i get around that and a boyfriend i had once said to me you can't basically you just got to do comedy that you can look yourself in the mirror for at the end of the day and say this is who i answer to is me 
you know, Cher said, you know, I only answer to two people, God and myself. And frankly, I only answer to one, me, because I'm not sure God really gives a crap. <laughs> so I just think it's like you do what you can look in a mirror about at the end of the day. Tell our audience the first time you did a show and somebody didn't understand the concept of what you were doing and they took something very, very personally. And not only did they share it from the audience, mm. but they shared it backstage with you. Well, well, three things come to mind, audience members, is uh, I was playing at Stand Up New York years ago before I really, maybe eight years in, and I was just like developing in New York. You hear that? Eight years in. I was just developing. Yeah. It takes, I always say it takes seven years to even know what the hell you're doing. And I started at 30, so I had a lot of patience. I was like, well, I'm going to make it when I'm about 50, which is fine. So um, anyway, so doing a show, and I remember I was calling some guy gay because he was really good looking because there were no gay guys in there. And I'm like, oh, you're good looking. You have to be a fag, right? So I'm making fun of him. And he's gorgeous looking. And at the end of the show, he comes up to me and he's in a wheelchair and he said, well, why didn't you make fun of that I'm in a wheelchair? If you were really brave, you would have done that. And I go, you know what? I didn't see those wheels, but he's right. So from then on, I started including disabled people, you know, autistic kids, isn't that? Because everyone wants to be included. I've even had autistic, women of autistic kids come up to me saying, thank you for having a sense of humor about our kids because no one does. So I think this guy understood that inclusion is what is needed in a show like this. Now, before you go into this other two, I want to share a story with you. When I was starting in Boston, there was an amazing comedian named Mike Donovan. Oh, sure. One of his classic bits was about family feud and Richard Dawson, the old host, being sure. the master of herpes because he used to <laughs> kiss <laughs> people everybody. all the time. And he did a parody of the show with the Mongoloid family. <laughs> and something you eat with a spoon... I'm sorry, no, not broccoli. Right, and he would just right. keep going and going and going and ring. Oh, look at their heads bobbing up and down there. Right. And it would always kill. And I remember I see these people walking out and there's two boys, maybe 22, young men, and they're holding their mother in the middle and their mother appears like she can't walk and she's crying hysterically and she stops in front of Mike Donovan mm -hmm. and she says, how dare you? Mm -hmm. How dare you do that? My son is mentally retarded. Mm -hmm. You should be ashamed of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I saw the look on his face. I'll never forget it. Yep. It was just awful. And I thought to myself, well, sometimes when you do this stuff in a routine, that it can be very damaging. But when you do it as an insult comic, sometimes people will laugh at you more and they'll embrace it more. Well, I think too, it just depends on the individual in the audience. I actually, I've never apologized for a joke. I've been doing this 26, 27 years until about a month ago because I'll never apologize to a group. I'm like, you know what, really? No, you don't deserve an apology. But to an individual, if they really have hurt feelings, I will have an intelligent conversation with them. Um, a few weeks ago, this was great. I, I love this because I love being real with people now that I'm willing to be more vulnerable. Um, I noticed this old guy during the show was just laughing at everything because I was insulting the hell out of him about old. And then I started doing this big, long routine about autistic kids. How like, I hate autistic kids because they're not full-fledged retards and you got to commit. You want me to fucking adopt you, you better have a goddamn bucket of uh, dro you're drooling into a helmet. So I'm making all these autistic jokes. And I noticed this old guy... 
He didn't yell. He didn't walk out. He didn't look. He just went blank. And I go, okay, something happened here. So I had to interrupt myself. I go, Ken, I go, I can't help because, you know, I had found out his name. Okay. I go, Ken, I can't help but notice you shut down like a little while ago. What happened? In the middle of Mm -hmm. your show. Sure. Because I'm vulnerable. I'll, I'll, you know, talk to somebody. And he goes, yeah, that kind of just got to me a little bit. And I sensed he had probably adopted a kid or something. And I go, you know what, Ken? I go, I've had people yell at me. I've had people walk out. You were a gentleman. You sat there like a man. You didn't yell at me. You didn't storm out. You didn't act like a little bitch. So for the first time in 27 years, I'm going to say, I'm sorry for that joke. If it hurt your feelings, I apologize. So come backstage and we'll talk about it after the show. So he came back with his wife. He was a huge fan. And he said he had adopted two autistic kids, but years ago before people were kind about autism and like threw things at the kids and yelled at them and stuff. And I said, well, my heart goes out to you. I think you did the right thing. I said, and I do apologize for that. And we bonded. So I love that vulnerability. But like I said, it's just because he was nice. All you have to do is say, I'd like to have a discussion about this. You know, at the Beacon Theater about six months ago, a guy had a, a similar issue, but he was a little bitch about it. He stood up, he started yelling. And I said, okay, first of all, you don't like jokes about retarded people? I go, how about you take offense at black jokes, Hispanic jokes, gay jokes? Didn't see you get pissed off about any of those, you fucking racist. I said, so guess what? You can get the fuck out now. Get your money back. I'll pay it back. I don't care. I said, you're not worth it. I said, see ya. And the audience was loving it because he was so disruptive. And he left and I go, you know why he was mad? Because he's fucking retarded. <laughs> so like if a guy's not a gentleman or a woman's not nice about it, I'm not going to talk to you. But if you're a gentleman, I'll talk to you. Is there anything that you've said on stage that when you take yourself out of your body mm-hmm. and think of you were in the other situation that you would be offended by? I mean, you know, if a joke's not good, I always said at these roasts, you know, if a joke's stupid and not well-crafted, I'm just like, Ugh. like, it's just not funny. So I'm offended you didn't take more time to write a funnier joke about me. But like, I like good jokes about myself. Like my favorite one is when Artie Lang, remember when Artie was just at his fattest and most heroin looking gray skin and he went up on a roast and he goes, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, hey, aren't you Lisa Lampanelli? (laughs) And I still think it is the funniest joke ever done about me because it required thought. So at the roast, I would always be like, try a little harder, Larry King. Try a little (laughs) harder, Comedy Central staff writers who are writing for celebrity. You know, so I never mind a joke if it's well done. You know, and I learned it pretty early on from the guy I talk about in my play. I talk about an old boyfriend of mine. I don't know if you remember. He was not really on comedy radar. Big Frank D'Amico. He was this 400-pound comic. He was rapid fire. That was a boyfriend of yours. Yeah, and I learned to do comedy fast like him. Was that the guy who did the material that deceived you out about? No, thank God. No, because he was very handsome, actually, and women loved Frank. He was a handsome 400-pound guy. This other guy was one of those fat guys who's all armpits and skin tags like a Chris Christie. (laughs) Nobody wants to see that. But Big Frank was like, you know, he, he was rapid fire and that's how I learned to do comedy and do jokes that were funny and cutting edge, but didn't really hurt people's feelings. Do you know what I mean? Like they, if I say to a fat guy in the front, sir, you look in a great mood. I'm surprised because the all you could eat buffet closed an hour ago. It's he's not going to really probably go home and kill himself over being fat. <laughs> I mean, you know. At some point, you just got to go, if I offend you that much, you could talk to me about it, write me a note, whatever, or that's your issue. I got an answer to just me. So you just said, 
one of my first boyfriends was Frank D'Amico. Yeah. He was 400 pounds. Yeah. I always like a guy who made me look skinny. No lie. I was 230 some pounds at the time. And I, he always also had swagger and, you know, he had that masculine tough guy mafia thing. Fake mafia, of course. He was connected to a fork. You know, that's about all he was connected to. <laughs> but yeah, he was one of my first boyfriends. I really loved working with him because I was like, he wasn't famous or anything, but I learned a lot watching how to capture an audience. Since your show that you have here at the WP Theater, a lot of it's about body image. Yeah. I was speaking to somebody and they said they went out with a guy who was in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, out of all the sexes that you see with the disabled person in a relationship, mm -hmm. I'd say 99% you see a woman with a man in a wheelchair. 100%. And you rarely will ever see a man with a woman in a wheelchair. That's right, unless it's like an old couple. Yeah. Why is it that women are so accepting of men, no matter what they look like, right. and men can't seem to get past? Well, here's the two things, and these are two gross generalizations, but I think they're true for me. I, first of all, always dated people I knew I could get. And I think a lot of women who suffer from low self-esteem go, I can get that fat guy. I can get that guy without a job. I can get that, and I can caretake him into loving me. So while I was very lucky with a Frank D'Amico, with another comic, Mike Irwin. Another guy who was very heavy. Yep, and what's funny is he had three kids from a different marriage and stuff. I always was like, I was in love with them, but it probably, something inside said, I can't get the hot, good-looking guy. Let me see who I could get. They ended up, thank God, they were good guys, but they weren't what men or women would look at as the cream of the crop, but they were great people. I think a lot of times women, if you're brought up, you don't have a lot of self-esteem, you get what you can get, and you make it work, but also that caretaker element, that's why I think it's rarer to see a guy pushing a broad around in a wheelchair because women are born caretakers. Like even now I'm a total caretaker. Like I love, I have a disabled friend. I love to take care of her. My mother's 87. I, I, I have game night for her every week with seven friends. I drive to Connecticut to do that. I take her for a nail. I'm a born caretaker like everybody, every other woman I know. And I think men just don't have that in them for the most part, which is fine. It's just, just a difference between the sexes. And again, it is a generalization. And uh, I just always think I dated guys beneath me, to be honest with you, because of low self-esteem, which is why now I don't date anymore because I want to work on myself enough to never do that again. You don't date anymore? Not at all. No, I got divorced when I was uh, two years ago, got divorced. Now, how long were you married to that? Uh, three and a half years, but thank God, most amical divorce. And in fact, uh, he and his new wife came to see my show last night and love it. We're very good friends. Still me and Jimmy. When did you know it wasn't going to work anymore? Um, about... A year before we got married. A year before you got married? Yeah, what happened was, we talk about it now, I really felt at the time, I think, that I needed someone who made me feel protected, safe, because he was a big guy, very masculine, tough, a guy to go through this weight loss journey with, because we both got the weight loss surgery and lost 100 pounds, and um, I think he made me just feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, I don't need to be alone, and now that I'm so comfortable being alone, I go, let me work on me. And if I ever want to date again, it's going to be someone who's my spiritual equal, someone who's a soulmate opposed to kind of just a friend. So I got very lucky because, you know, Jimmy's the type too. He'll tell you right now, we, we love each other. He signed a pr the prenup with me without even reading it. That's how much he was into the making this work. 
So when we got divorced, it was like no issue. I mean, I've really dodged a lot of bullets when it came to men. I've dated bad ones, and but the ones I've got really involved with have been really good-hearted guys. Have you ever gone out with somebody who you felt was... An equal? An equal or, you know how uh, there's a joke, somebody will go up to somebody and say, hey, this was not a lateral move for you. Yeah, my high school, first boyfriend in high school, Paul Adams, who now lives, we are, we're actually engaged. He went to Cornell. He's an engineer. He's married, I guess, since college with um, lovely kids, wife. Um, probably was the only equal that I ever dated. And then I think, uh, really, we spell it out in my play a lot. When I went away to college, just the rug was pulled out from under me. I was alone and I was scared and I was ripped out of this like really close Italian family that I honestly didn't know what to do. Like I literally had the worst years of my life in college. So my eating started, then the weight goes on, then you start dating the wrong guys, you break up with the good boyfriend high school, you know, and then sort of just by working on myself through all these 32 years since college, I've been able to say, okay, I've got my weight under control and I'm trying to eat better. I'm trying to keep the weight off. I'm not dating until I work on myself enough to attract an equal. And I think, thank God, I feel like I'm 15 years old, you know, physically with the best mind and the best emotional state I've ever had. I'm, I'm literally the luckiest person you've ever met. I just can't believe it. I've always felt that way every moment that I've ever spent with you. Isn't it funny? And I just think now, like my, even my friends are equals now. Like I don't, again, I do have one disabled friend who's my friend for 30 years that we're just spiritual equals. Like we can talk about anything. And I go, no one's in my life anymore who's crappy. I just can't believe I lucked into all this. But I didn't luck into it, obviously. But I can't believe I could work my way into it. And so since you talk about it so openly, you're in high school, you're going into college. So right before you go into college that summer, mm -hmm. when you look in the mirror after you get out of the shower... Mm -hmm and you're drying off, what do you see? I was really had no issue with weight and food before college. It was when I went away, I just specifically remember food was my only friend. Be okay, yeah. so in high school, you liked yeah. your body, you thought... Yeah. I was cute. I, I mean, I don't remember ever going, I'm fat, I'm this, I'm that. I remember not loving that I had hips unlike all those really stick thin girls but back then stick thing wasn't popular they were called too skinny yeah. you know when in my day i mean i'm 55 now when i was in high school a size 10 or an 8 was considered what you were supposed to be we didn't have zeros like there was no such thing as a zero got it so you go to college and psychologically what happens is you get homesick you feel alone mm -hmm. And when was the first time that you noticed that eating food was orgasmic? Well, the thing is, I don't think it's ever orgasmic. I think it's just pushing down stuff. So it's almost like you'll never get to the point where you're thrilled, or at least I didn't. But it was like you're not as miserable when you're eating as when you're not. So basically, say I'm home by myself. It's not even registering that it's an emotional episode. But I'm like, I got to eat something. I'm hungry. And you're not physically hungry and you'll just eat and then you'll afterwards be like, oh, now I, I still feel bad. But now I've added on to it by feeling crappy about myself for eating. And it's a vicious cycle. So the depression eating and the self-hate in the mirror just adds up to one big depression. OK, so you go through that and you go through your worst years in college. I get it. Mm -hmm. You 
get into stand-up and you notice that you're successful and crowds love you mm -hmm. and you're being embraced by people and other comics are embracing you. They want to work with you. They want to hang out with you. You're not lonely anymore. So then why are you still having the problem? I think it's uh, it's there's always something to eat over because everyone always has problems or drink over or anything. When you're starting to become successful and people are loving you. Well, there was never universal love for me. You know, I wouldn't be a guy who would walk into a club and everybody would love me. Other comics were very mean to me. I was super threatening to people. At the time, I didn't think I was threatening because I thought everybody was really better than me as a comic. But then my openers, my you know good friend openers would be like, don't worry that so-and-so is mean to you. They're threatened by you because you get some more love on the stage. I go, fuck you. That's not true. They're great. Like I could look at anyone who was mean to me and go, they're so much better than me. And um, But then after a while, I go, they are threatened. So there was never this, hey, let's hang out with Lisa's thing. First of all, I'm the women com woman comic, 200-some pounds you don't want to fuck. Also, I'm an adult. I'm... 35 40 years old no one wants to hang out with me and go get laid and go drink and go this that. so i'm kind of a loner in this business like now i really kind of don't have any friends who are comics other than my opener and you know i'll of course talk to guys who i love like jim florentine don jameson those kind of guys were always so nice to me and norton people like that but oh these mean comics i laugh about these mean comics all the time i have a routine now where i go uh I'll do a Q&A during the show and I, somebody asks who was mean to you coming up and I said well I'll tell you who was really mean to me and you can tell me what they have in common I go Patrice O'Neill, Greg Giraldo and Joan Rivers I go what do they have in common they go they're dead I go yeah you'd be mean to Lisa Lampanelli God fucking kills you <laughs> because it's so weird to me everyone was mean to me and I would go to that comedy cellar and I would just go home and cry all the time because everybody was nasty and my boyfriend at the time would be like you want me to go down there and I'd be like no I gotta handle this by myself I didn't handle it. I have the thinnest skin in the world. I'm a vulnerable, I'm a mushy-hearted person. But they thought that that uh, onstage Lisa was the real Lisa. It's like, I'm a chick. I'm like a, a, a pushover. Don't you think it's fascinating that the person who spends the most time insulting people yes. and rapid fire when one comic or two comics or ten comics shit on you? Well... We're off stage. Why aren't we all just talking and teaming? When you were at the comedy cellar table. I won't. I wouldn't. I would always sit somewhere else. I would go to the cellar because I had spots every single night. And I was like, I'm not giving up my spots for these fucking retards. So I would literally take one of my openers at the time and we would sit at a different table, eat, and then I'd go do my set and leave. Which is the advice for everybody I give is get in, get, get out. out. I would bring a book. Mark Marin, I remember, would bring a book. And I, at the time when I did his podcast, I goofed on him about the book. And I was like, that is the greatest idea ever. Bring a book. But yeah, I was never a sparrer. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. I always was like, we do this on stage. Why can't we come off and just be nice? For the most part, we're all just dented cans. Like Alan Zweibel told me that early on. He was like, people just, we all have dents. We don't want to give anybody botulism. We just got to try to push out our dents. And it's true. I mean, Patrice, God bless him. Greg Geraldo, God bless him. Joan Rivers, God bless him. They, everyone's a dented can. I'm sure I was mean to people, not comics, but I'm sure I was mean to people like at hotels or on the street or something throughout my life. I'm sure I yelled way too much at people. We just try to get better every year. Tell me something that comedians told you along the way that made you cry. 
I remember one time there was no one at the cellar at that table. And this was like one of my first weeks. And Lisa's talking about a table upstairs as you go up the stairs from the comedy cellar. There's the Olive Tree Cafe, which is the place where the comedians hang out. And there's a bar as you walk up. And right to the right is a table where Esty, the person who runs and has been such a mainstay there, sits with a bunch of comedians. Sometimes she's not there and a right. bunch of comedians sit down and it's a rite of passage. You sit down and you talk serious stuff, but then there's times when people just shit on everybody. Yeah, and I, I just remove myself from it. Because I think you do sh should remove yourself if you don't feel good. Because I didn't want to spar with anybody. I always used to love sitting there because I love when people shit on me. Yeah, but you don't, maybe you are thicker skin. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really sensitive. I'm like way sensitive. I mean, clearly it's like a Rickles thing where you're such a mush off stage. That's why you do what you do on stage. But... I just remember once when Patrice uh, came up to me, there was no one at the cellar, and he said to me, he sat down, and he was asking me some advice about some girlfriend at the time, and I was pretty good with advice with stuff like that. And I go, yeah, I think you should really, and we have like this hour-long discussion. He's like, yeah, thanks. So the next day I come in, all those guys are there, and I go, hi, Patrice. And he goes, look, just because we talk once doesn't mean we're fucking friends get lost. And like the tears spring to my eyes, like, of course. And I'm just like, uh-huh. You know, and you just like leave. And I'm just like, oh my God, that's so shocking to me. And it's like bullying, which I hate that word. And I hate like, oh, we're getting bullied. But it's like, oh my God, this wasn't real what we just experienced for an hour the day before. I remember once I was sitting there with a guy who I thought was kind of nice. I forget his name, but um, he had always, I had lost a bunch of weight and he always made me feel like I looked decent. Like he, he would be always, hey, you look nice tonight. Like a really nice guy. He wasn't performing at the cellar yet but he was trying so we're sitting there just talking normal and he goes yeah you look great he goes but man you got some old ass looking hands and i go oh my like it's just comes so far out of nowhere you know what it is when it comes out of nowhere it hurts you more if you have a mother who's yelled at you for 40 years straight you're not even affected by it anymore but when it comes from a weird source that you thought was nice you're like holy shit and I remember even like Tony Rock, he'll never remember this because it's such pussy stuff anyway with me. Like I'm hurt very easily. He was doing a spot at the cellar, or at, the, at the comic strip. He went up right after me and I was, that night I was sick, which is also makes you overly sensitive. I think I had strep throat or something, but you never miss a spot. No, you never miss a yeah, spot. Yeah, I would never because you got your, you know, you might get discovered that night. So I had on like sweatpants and something and I was like barely keeping it together. And he just within earshot as I got off the stage, go ham for Lisa Lampanelli. Why is always fat women are the only one who wears sweats? And I was like, I just got off stage. I got my car and I just start crying. And so I like I go down to the cellar and I know I have to see him again because of the fucking you have to do those eight spots a night. And I'm like, oh, my God. And he, he'll never know this. But the thing is. I don't even think it was bad hearted. I don't know what it was, well, but it just, everything hurts you when you're vulnerable, when you're sick or lonely or tired. They always say that thing in AA is hungry, angry, lonely, tired. You don't, you're very vulnerable when you're those four things. And I was usually one of them. But what's fascinating sitting across from you, it could be argued that your career has been made out of bullying. You created the right. character of a bully. Right. And what if there's people in the crowd that are tired, mm -hmm. sick? 
It's not like you're Dan Whitney mm-hmm. as Larry the Cable Guy. Right. You're Lisa Lampanelli mm-hmm. as Lisa Lampanelli right. talking like Lisa Lampanelli on stage as Lisa Lampanelli talks in the tone off stage. Well, actually, that's that part's not true. I don't talk. If you watch me talk now to you, uh-huh. it's way different than the on stage thing. You know, it's very. You know, even tempered, it's really even keel. I mean, it's a heightened, heightened, heightened version of myself. But also, I know how to tell if an audience member's having fun. If I see two guys in the front and I call them gay and they look uncomfortable, I find a reason to jump to somebody else quick. So when you look back at all your shows that you've done, do you feel like, well, there's a percentage of the audience that is always going to be hurt? No, because I think they know what they're coming into. Meaning... That thing from Tony hit me out of nowhere because we weren't friends. We were hardly speaking um, because none of those guys spoke to me. So if we had been friends, like right now, like my opener could say, oh, yeah, my opener goes up now and he goes, don't worry, Lisa looks great after her weight loss, but don't worry, Ani, she's still a raging cunt. <laughs> we're friends. Of course I'm going to like like that. If, and, or if not, he'd be fired. The thing is, it's if you're not friends with somebody, that's why the roasts work when you appear to be friends with somebody i hardly ever make fun of anybody i'm not friends with like on a roast if i don't like you like if i hate you i'm not doing any jokes about you like i just avoid it because i'm like people are going to tell i don't like them you can tell with the undertone of the voice you know what's in your heart but like for instance there was a girl in the audience about god god four or five years ago and i was calling her skinny and this and that because she was really tiny and i still had the weight on but and she was really laughing but then i noticed that she literally had to have been anorexic because she, I could see every bone in her neck, every bone in her rib cage. And I turned it around on myself because I go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm enforcing her anorexia. Let me turn it around. And I go, boy, I wish I looked like you. I go, me, fat, blah, blah, blah. And we did a bunch of fat jokes. And after the show, I made sure and found her and said, did you have fun? And she goes, oh, it was great. And she's hugging me. She goes, you made me feel so good. And I was like, thank God. So I go, there's a chance I'll hurt someone. But guess what? I do my freaking best not to. Like, if somebody looks uncomfortable, I'm leaving. I'm going to this guy who looks secure in his gayness or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? So I do my best. We all did our best. Those guys at the cellar did their best. They're guys who couldn't be close. Patrice O'Neill couldn't be close to me. He couldn't say, hey, Lise, great talk yesterday. And you know what's great about him is that he was so real, like, he appreciates stuff like that. His wife called me because they did an interview after his death. He did an interview with me about him. And I just said, I, what, now that he's dead, I have to pretend to like him? I go, he's a fucking asshole. I go, he's the worst. I go, there was no one meaner to open micers or anyone. I go, I'm so glad he's dead. Because I'm just real. His wife sent me an email saying, Patrice would have loved that so much because you were so real. And he, all he ever wanted people to be was real. So I think we were all just doing our best. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. 
I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. All right, let's go way, 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 way back. Yes. In the Sherman and Peabody machine. Yes. Take me back to where you grew up. Your family dynamic. You know, we grew up very middle class, normal. Um, we're Italian, growing up in Fairfield, Connecticut. So I always say we were the blacks of Fairfield County. <laughs> um, so I luckily went to Catholic school. So it wasn't like a super affluent school. Like it wasn't like going to school at Staples in Westport, Connecticut, where it's a high income level. It was just normal folks, average people. Um, my father was white collar, but not, you know, high, high, high level. My father was a painter, part-time, you know, um, fine artist. And the best thing he said to me, and what inspired me especially about this play was, I always asked him, his stuff was so good. And I always go, why don't you sell your stuff? And he'd go, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to do it. So I always thought to myself, um, I could be good at comedy. I could be good at this play. Doesn't mean I have to make money from it. That's not the value that comes from it. It comes from the joy of doing it. So. I think he's the one who taught me to go, okay, I could do this for free and freaking love it. Like comedy, I loved so much that I go, even if I just make it to the $1,000 a week headliner, who cares? Like I would still do it. So that was really cool because just seeing somebody who did art well and didn't care about the dough, that was very good growing up that way. Respect that last cash. Yeah, yeah. And he also, um, what was good about my folks, they were very, they were, they didn't spoil us at all. Like they were strict. My mother's strict as F, she still is. And she 
was a gangster, man. Just to hear you say strict as F, that's shocking. If you notice, I don't curse off stage anymore because uh, my dad died and I felt with respect to him, I don't curse anymore off stage. I don't uh, do anything ethnic off stage. It's all I kept for the stage now because I just go, my dad loved women who were like Audrey Hepburn and classy. So I go, I'm going to just be classy for my dad. I must have been a shock that first time he came to see you. It was, oh no, he loved that stuff. Because he knew too, he's a smart guy. He knew that was first age. He would stand up and cheer and wave. It was so cute. My mother still does. She loves it. She curses, man. She's crazy. <laughs> but uh, they didn't spoil us at all. Like we got stuff for Christmas. We got stuff for birthday. It wasn't like every day you get what you point at, you know, and we had to be nice, you know, but I think also my role in the family, because I was a middle kid, was more of the mascot because I did a lot of work where I did to, went to this codependency week at a rehab place to find out why I was dating the wrong kind of guys. And um, what rehab facilities are just for that? It's fantastic. It's, no, it's also a drug and alcohol, but I didn't. I've never done drugs or alcohol, just food. And um, what it was, it's a it's a very famous program for codependency where if you find yourself drawn to the wrong types or you're caretaking your parents too much or you're kind of caretaking your kids um, to an unhealthy degree or supporting someone to an un that you find out what in you is making you do that and help you stay away from that person or pull back or detach. It's very 12-steppy. Um, it's called the Karen Foundation in Pennsylvania. It's genius. So they have this one-week codependency program, and um, I just learned from that. But we did this program within that program called the Family Atom, A-T-O-M, where they dissect what role you played in the family. And my role was somewhere between lost child and mascot, which is the lost child is the one who will dis disappear for like two hours in their room drawing or painting or reading or writing stuff. And they just take care of themselves. But they're secure because they know the family's there. Then, but my other role was mascot, which didn't mean funny, which meant more like I could make my mother laugh if she was in a bad mood. I could get her mind off the drama so it could diffuse some energy in the family. So I found out a lot about our dynamic. I was definitely the one who they looked to to sort of lighten things up. Got it. And so take us through the jobs that you had before you somehow stumbled upon stand-up comedy. Yeah. Oh, my first job in high school was at Cousin Ed's Hot Dog House. <laughs> and, of course, I had a crush on the cook and I ended up inviting him to prom. He tried to touch my boob. I wouldn't let him and he never talked to me again. That was my first job. Second job was at Tasha Knoll's Golf Course as a waitress. I started dating the cook there, too, and then he stood me up and we never talked again. Pattern here. And then, uh, you know, I ended up um, in college at Syracuse University. I really love money. I don't like to do work and not get paid. I feel I'm worth something. So I was a newspaper journalism major at Newhouse, and I was like, I want to get paid. I don't want to work on the whack-ass student newspaper. So I found myself a job at the Daily Paper in Syracuse, Syracuse Herald Journal, and I wrote, like, wedding announcements and then reviewed concerts and stuff. So that was my first journalism thing. Used to interview the rock bands, yes, the hair bands that uh, yeah, came through. I don't like to brag, but you know, Cinderella, Slaughter, all the good ones. And uh, my thing was, I was always into prog rock, I loved like Rush and Jethro Tull. So I interviewed like all my heroes, yes, you know, all these really nerdy rock bands, prog rock bands, and Getty Lee from uh, 
from Rush told me I was the best interviewer because I really researched them. So that's why now when people interview me and they don't know anything about me, I always go, bitch, back then I researched the fuck out of Getty Lee and I didn't have a computer. Like I had to go to the library and use microfilm. I said, call me back when you research me. I thought you were going to be mad that I had eight pages. No, it's honored. It's an honor. But so after journalism, though, I worked at Spy Magazine. I went to Harvard for this six-week program in the summer for publishing. And then I just was like, I'm never going to be Tom Wolf. I'm never going to be a great journalist. I just had fun with it. I said, what do I want to do? And I was working as a uh, proof, not proof, a researcher at um, Rolling Stone. And I said to this guy, Steve Futterman, you know, he was definitely the disheveled Jew in the, in the research department, the one who the papers are always flying all over. And he's like always a mess with no shoes on. I go, Steve, I really want to try to do stand-up comedy. He goes, oh, it's disgusting, self-centered, narcissistic. I go, sounds right for me. But well, why didn't you want to do it? I don't, something in my gut always told me I was funny. But there had to be something that inspired you. I remember getting my first laugh when I was eight at my Aunt Rose's house for dinner. And it was me, okay, my dad, this is my dad's favorite aunt, she was so great. And I said something, at the time, remember Macy's used to be called Macy's and Bambergers? Yeah. Okay, well I, because I knew I was clever at eight years old, I said something like, are you guys, I think we should go tomorrow to Macy's and Hamburgers. And when you're eight, that's a killer joke. <laughs> so of course it killed at the table. Then guess what, I learned real quick not to milk a joke, because I said it again, <laughs> and I didn't even leave room for a callback. You know, respectable callback has like 20 minutes after the first reference. And so then it was like, they're staring at me like crickets, I'm like, note to self, don't milk the joke. But I think since eight, and since that sort of role I had in the family, I was always like, I bet I could do this. You know, I think I'm in trouble because my mm -hmm. kid's first joke uh -oh. when he was 10 was, I'm ambidextrous. That means I can write with my right hand and I masturbate with my left hand. Shut up. He did not. <laughs> I swear to God. Shut the fuck up. I swear to God. Oh, I just cursed. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> um, dude, are you serious? That he didn't even know what that meant? That was his first joke. Did he know yeah. what the M word meant? I didn't want to get into it at the time. Dude, that's My bad father. No, but that sounds like I would like that kid. That kid would be my friend, by the way. He <laughs> actually asks me all the time. He says... Daddy, when can I get back to New York City? I love that city. Aww. I took him here one time, and I always tell him the old Frank Sinatra line, if you can make it that's right. You, know, you can make it anywhere. See, that's what was good about comedy, too, doing it here. Even though it felt crappy every night, I got a lot of love at the strip, I remember. The comic strip yeah. where Eddie Murphy started and Jerry yeah. Seinfeld. And Lucian, always the former manager slash owner. Whenever it would be bombing, he gave me so much self-esteem. He'd be like, go up and do your thing. Like He'd be like, if people weren't doing well. But he, uh, that's good coming up in New York because you do feel like once you make your bones here, you're good. Take us through your first time on stage. What happened? Oh my God, it was so great. Okay, here's what happened. I was doing, uh, my little nephew Blaze was born and he's 26 <laughs> now. So it's 26 years ago. And I was driving up to see him at his new house, my brother's kid, um, in near West uh hartford connecticut i hear an ad on the on the radio for rent to djs and i go well you know what <laughs> i always wanted to talk on the mic i bet if i become a dj first i'll learn how to be good on the mic and then i won't be nervous to do stand-up mm -hmm. so i start being a dj i start doing really well and making money for the company and then all of a sudden um i end up going okay i see an ad for this uh this guy, Michael Jackson, who's teaching a comedy class in improv. They do the improv class, 
I do the improv show. I completely suck because I don't want to share any laughs. So I keep going for cheap laughs. I st- keep saying racial and, and, and uh, sexual things. And improv people hate that. I'm a no mm-hmm. but. They're a yes and. So I go on stage. I, uh, I end up convincing this Michael Jackson to do a stand-up comedy class with us. And my first time on stage, I remember two guys even though my routine was super clean, not insulting, because I just was talking about myself, two guys high-fived on the tape, and I go, I'm going to do this. I called in sick to my day job the next day, I'm like, I'm a comic. Like, I just knew it from the first day. Then, of course, you have your hard shows, you're bombing, you're this, you're that. But that first time, I still have that VHS tape, and I go, I knew something was going to happen. And even if it was only the 1,000 a week headliner thing as my goal, I was like, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. And what was the first moment you said to yourself, I'm never doing anything else again that makes money but this? Oh, God. Um, I bucked for a layoff at my company where I had that day job at the time I started comedy. And um, because they were having a layoff, I got laid off. And I just started calling every booker, every crappy one night or every holiday in that had a comedy night and i was like this is what i'm doing that's it and since then i just had little day jobs and that's all i've been really and and thank god for the pam anderson roast because that's the one where everybody watched and all the tickets my tickets started selling because of her well let's talk about that for a second so before you got the call to do the roast there's no roast comedy clubs right do you remember who saw you first and said i'm gonna take a chance it wasn't comedy central i'll tell you that much it wasn't here's what happened it was a chevy chase roast what happened was the friars club for some reason loved me because i'm old-fashioned i'm an old school type of comic so they at the time were producing the chevy chase roast with um comedy central so Comedy Central was like, we don't know who she is. We're not having her on the roast. And they're like, well, we're co-producers, so we want her on. She's on. So I get the phone call. I'm in my little tiny studio apartment in the city. And I'm like, oh, my God, in two weeks, my life is going to change. And just so you know, when you get the call as a roaster, it's $15,000. At that time, since that's so long ago, I think it was twelve. Twelve. I just even kind of, that sticks out in my mind as so 12. So th- the point being is that this is an amount of money that Lisa Lampanelli had probably never made. Oh my God, no. I, it was the best. You're right. And I was like, I didn't have like, I mean, I owned an apartment. I wasn't destitute. I was an adult already. But I mean... I had to save up for the dress and I had to save up to the hair and makeup. Like there's so many expenses. How did you know that, okay, I should wear a dress for this? Because back then you right. saw the old roast, but you didn't know what the new roasts were supposed to be like. I think the Friars told me what they usually do because the Friars Club was so instrumental in getting me on that one. And I remember going to Bloomingdale's and being like, I know exactly what I want. And, you know, to get something like that in a big enough size, it's hard. But it ended up to work out great. I, I actually like that roast outfit the most of anything I've ever worn on a roast, I think. So take us through the dais. Yeah. You've never roasted anybody before, correct? Nothing. But the night before, I went to an open mic and I said, okay, you're Chevy Chase, you're Paul Schaefer, you're Lorraine Newman, 
you're whatever that bitch's name, Beverly D'Angelo. And I, you're Jeff, no, Jeff Ross wasn't even on that one. And I was just like, okay, so now pretend you're them and I'm going to do these jokes about you. I mean, it's up to the last minute. I don't do that anymore because I'm confident. This is why Lisa Lampanelli has become a household name and is a huge star. So Lisa gets the call. She's on a dais. Most of the comedians on the dais have roasted hundreds of times. They've done Friars Club roasts over and over and over again. So there's one rookie out of 10 people on that stage with cameras rolling. Now, you're not expected as a rookie to go into a situation and blow everyone off the stage. You're expected to be okay. Well, hopefully she'll hold her own. Right. Maybe she'll do a good job. Right. But the way you rise in any business is by creating the unexpected, mm -hmm. by just blowing people the fuck away. And when you do a roast, and it's the same with Whitney Cummings when she mm -hmm. got the first call, you have to go up and you have to be as good as the best person or better right. or else you're going to disappear. It was literally the first time I felt like, I know it sounds cliche as this day and age, but freaking Alexander Hamilton. I was like, I'm not throwing away my shot. I was like, this is it. If I don't kill more than anyone, I will fade into obscurity and they're never going to give me a chance again. And what was worse was Chevy Chase was a dick. Everyone was bombing. And I was smart enough to say to Paul Schaefer, when you bring me up, introduce me as Friar Lisa Lampanelli. So I get all those friars on my side first. So they already like me. So if you notice when you watch it, he goes, Friar Lisa Lampanelli. And there's such a huge applause break because all these people like me already and they're on my side because there was a lot of friars there that night, 1,500 people, and has done this, this, and that. And he did the funny intro. And I was like, um, okay, I already got them on my side. I'm going out there. And Chevy was looking down. He was looking around. I go, this motherfucker is not distracting me. He's not going to make my one shot at a career fail this fuck him like i went up with the fire of fuck you chevy chase but not outward out loud tell us your opening line uh thank you paul schaefer looking at that head it reminds me to go home and clean my dildo <laughs> <laughs> you know and paul loves that paul always remembers that so i got everybody i had the best kevin meanie jokes they ended up getting cut out but this was before kevin came out of the closet and I was like, Kevin Meany, you fat fuck. I go, look <laughs> at you. I heard you got arrested when you had to rescue your wife and daughter at the airport. I go, wife and daughter? I thought you were a big fucking faggot. <laughs> you know, so it was great. So I, I just was so confident in every single joke. Oh, wait, I just thought of another joke I loved from that. I said, oh, it's good to see Rosie O'Donnell here. Oh, I'm sorry. That's Freddie Roman. <laughs> <laughs> just those little things. I love those things. So I, I didn't even look at Chevy Chase because I was like, you are not, you are not distracting me from fame. I said, I'm making it. And just in my gut, I go, I'm not throwing away my shot. And I, then I just go, okay, I watch it the next week because they edit them fast. And they edit them way down. Sometimes they edit these sets down to three minutes. Yeah. They ended up putting me, I had been on 10th. They put me third because I did so well. And I said, thank you, God. So I did really well. Then what I found ironic is Dennis Leary was the next roast. He didn't ask me to do it. 
So I was like, oh, I guess that's over. But now at least I'm getting some recognition. I'm on Howard Stern. I'm doing this, that. Then they kept asking me for all the rest after that. And Dennis eventually asked me to do a Christmas special with him. But it's funny how, like, I was like, no one's getting in my way. Because you only get one chance. Back then, there weren't as many channels either, you know? So it's just like, you got to do it. I felt like such a gangster that night. I was like, you all suck compared to me. And that night, it wasn't even close. Yeah, it was horrible. You just decimated everyone. Some of the people you decimated were people who had done hundreds of roasts for the Friars Club. Yeah. What people don't understand is that it really, truly isn't as hard getting there as it is staying there. And so every year you're going on and there's that bar you went from the bar being down by the ground next to the dust yep. to the bar being at the top of the ceiling. And now the next roast you're on, there's nine other comedians who know that you're at the top of the mountain. And every single one of them, you know, as they're smiling and saying, <laughs> have a good set, are saying, I'm going to fucking blow That's her right. off the stage. That's right. And so every year, you know, you're the world champion and somebody's coming to try to knock you off your place and take the championship away from you. Mm. So the next time you do it. Right. It's uh, who was it? I think it was Foxworthy. So you see the comics there. Psychologically, you know, you have the mantle. But which comics are you thinking to yourself? This person could take the title away from me. I never think anyone can because I don't I don't think anyone thinks anyone can. If you this business is so hard you have to think you're the best. Like I bet every comic out there who makes it has thought they were the best even when they weren't that good. Because you almost have to believe in yourself so much that it's not even fake. Like if you ask me right now, who's the best comic who's ever lived? I go, me, what are you kidding me? Like, I'm not. Who's the second best comic that ever lived? Uh, I don't know. I don't think there's this close second to me. <laughs> I mean, no, like you have to really be that delusional. But when the roast, I was always very intimidated. I was never intimidated by Jeff Ross because he's such a great guy. Because I always knew he was great and it didn't bother me. Because I was like, oh, we're equals, you know? I was always knowing that Greg Giraldo was going to say something mean that would really get to me and I'd have to fucking tell him off later. I always knew that um, DePaulo would bring it. I love him, <laughs> though. I, I always loved those Italian, those the ethnic comics but there was one roast that foxworthy one there's those three guys there was colin quinn geraldo and uh DePaulo, and then there's cable guy and the three blue collar guys so it was like this east versus west thing so i was like i wasn't scared of the three blue collar guys because they're friends i love those guys but i was like oh these three gangsters are going to be mean to me so i said i'm getting them and i just like freaking went off and i was just like i have to look at everything like my last TV appearance. Like even with this play, every night is the last night I'm doing it. God forbid we get blown up. I have to do the best job ever. I make these bitches run lines before every show. Do you understand? I'm a, I'm a freaking fellow actor and I'm saying, okay, let's go. Being a big, big shot. Cause I'm like, it could be our last night to do this. So I think with comedy, I always look at my show as it sounds corny, but every show's your last show. All right. Tell me the first time in a roast where you thought a performer did better than you. Did better? I always thought, I, I always thought Geraldo killed it, but he never, you know, this is all I've said before. Ger Geraldo never on TV looked as good as he did in person. And it was such a shame because he would have been way more famous. He, there was something that didn't translate that he was fine. 
and the jokes were good, but in the room he was electrifying. I don't know what that was, that quality. So I always like, oh, he crushed it. How am I going to follow that? Then Jeff Ross was going to do it, motherfucker, how's he going to do that? <laughs> and so I'd go, geez, and then these and celebrities, these Betty Whites and these other ones who's they're writing great jokes for and they practice. I'm like, Jesus Christ. But then I would always have to go last for the most part. So I'd have 30 pages of jokes instead of 15. So I had to work harder. Because if somebody touched on a subject or a joke that yeah, that you did, had, you got to cross it off. It's the toughest spot going on last. Oh, and watch. Watch any roast. You will see me at the commercial breaks. They pull back. I'm with the pages, with the pen the whole time. Everybody else is partying and drinking and having fun. I am miserable just writing, going, what do I do? What do I do? So it's cool because the work pays off. But So I always thought, oh, those are the guys I have to not even beat, but just, thank God, be as good as. Anthony Jeselnik in the Trump roast was so freaking great, and my heart was so happy for him because it was his first thing. And I was just like, he gave me the best gift of all that night. Because did you ever see his stand-up? He was mean. I didn't know him. And I watched his tape when I was writing jokes about it. I go, oh, my God, he's so mean. I bet he's going to be so mean to me. And I was all scared. He gets up there and he goes, Lisa Lampanelli, you're cool. And then he kept going and did somebody else. And I go, that was somebody's way of giving me a gift tonight. Isn't that the coolest thing? And then he never did another one again, I don't think. Wow. Isn't that wild? I got a free pass. But I always believe that huggable and lovable wins the race and yeah. when you make a decision as a comedian to have a presence and an aura on stage that isn't huggable and lovable your chances of making it are slim and none and he made it but your chances of staying up there it's harder and harder because you're not giving as much love out there right. and you have to find that niche and don't get me wrong there's tons of comedians who have longevity who Warren Huggable and Lovable, Dennis Leary being mm -hmm. one, yes, Bill yes. Hicks being another, mm -hmm. but it's hard. It's harder that way. I think also there's no need to stay at the top. If I, my ticket sales were best, I forget which year it was. It was the year I sold out Carnegie Hall and Radio City within two months of each other. Well, because what happened was I went on Stern to promote Carnegie Hall. It sold out so fast that Jeff Wills from Live Nation was like, we're leaving a lot of tickets on the table. Let's do Radio City. And this is where my low self-esteem comes from. I go to my mom and dad. We're sitting at dinner one night and I go, mom, they decided to do Radio City. She goes, how are you going to sell all those tickets? And it sold out. But see, it keeps you humble. 6,000 seats. 732. 6,732. 6, I believe that's the number. And Carnegie Hall is how much? 3,500 about. That's 10,000 tickets in New York City yes. from a person who started at Stand Up New York. Or way lower. Joker's Wild in New Haven, Connecticut was my first open mic. But I'm like, that was definitely the height. Then you got dips and you got where you just got to hang in there and go, why aren't I selling out Des Moines? Why aren't I selling out Pittsfield, Massachusetts? Why is there only two shows at the Beacon instead of 400 like Sebastian has? And you just go, because that's where I'm meant to be right now. I'm meant to be at this place. So you sell 10,000 seats mm -hmm. in New York City. Mm -hmm. That's the height. Mm -hmm. Talk about the first time you noticed a dip. Oh, I was pissed. Okay. It really makes me mad still. And it actually led to a great thing. A Thursday night about six years ago, I was just doing a fill-in gig at this theater in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. 800 seats. I was like, oh, that's nothing. Well, Thursday night in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, I sold 600 seats. I walk out of there, and I am furious. And I said to my husband at the time, Jimmy, I said, fuck 
this shit. I can't sell no fucking 800 fucking tickets. I'm like, I'm retiring. <laughs> so I call my manager. I go, I'm retiring. She's like, why? I go, because I have three houses. I have fucking Lexus. I don't need this pressure every day. If I can't sell Pittsfield, Massachusetts, <laughs> I'm going to kill myself. So I decide to retire. The next day, I'm at our apartment in the city. I've turned on HBO and Carrie Fisher's doing a one-woman show. And I go, oh, I could do that. I said, now I want to put out there about my weight thing, my, my boyfriend problems, my marriage problem, my love problems. So I start writing this one-person show with Alan Zweibel, which turns into this play. And ticket sales and comedy have gotten better. So what makes me laugh is that, thank God I hadn't, didn't sell out that place or I wouldn't be doing vulnerable work now that actually is funny and impacting people's lives. So it just cracks me up that those deepest moments, if you kind of get, go to a more creative place about where do I need to be, like I needed to not sell those tickets. God forbid I sold out that rotten show in Pittsfield. I would have never done a play. I wouldn't ever feel exposed to like audiences that are crying now because they're like, oh my God, you know, this really touched me. So I'm very lucky. I think I actually went back there since and I sold it out. <laughs> People don't get how Thursdays and Sundays, if you're not like a household name, Thursdays and Sundays are hard, you know? And But how lucky am I? Think about it. I've never played a club since that Pam Anderson roast. Never again. I've never walked into a comedy club except to watch a friend. I mean... That's pretty damn lucky. There's a lot of guys who still have to do those week-long gigs in Lake Tahoe or awful places. Lucky. Fortunate. Fortunate means it involves work I'm also. Talking to somebody who during the roast when everybody's partying in the back is it's writing, writing down like their a, cards. Yeah. I'm talking to somebody in the audience now. Mm-hmm. of an empty theater that will be will full be tonight. Actually, yeah. I'm talking to somebody who makes her co-workers here run lines every night. Yeah. That's somebody who isn't lucky. Well, it's funny. I'm very driven, but by the right things, I think. It used. It was never for money. It was always for... I don't even think this was for the right reasons. I always liked um, being, quote, somebody, but then that disappeared a few years ago, and now it's just service. Like, that's why this show is successful and got produced by someone and why it's going to continue next year, because... It's of service. It's to make every person in the audience feel like they're not alone with this issue. So I'm like, I started approaching comedy that way, stand-up that way too, as service, being um, not getting laughs but giving. If this person has a parent dying or this person has um, a disease or something, that they could laugh and they could get something out of it. But when I'm looking to get something out of it, I'm a huge failure. Like, I'll still kill but I'll feel like a failure inside. But if I go, oh, that guy got cheered up because of me, that's my self-esteem now. So I think it's a healthier place for me, at least. Take our audience through your process of how from cradle to grave you sat down to write to being up on a stage in a beautiful theater Mm -hmm. with sold-out audiences. I was so lucky when I saw that Carrie Fisher HBO special. Lucky? Lucky that I happened to be flipping past it and I said to Jimmy at the time my husband I said I'm not retiring I'm writing a play and he's like oy vey so I'm lucky enough that I know Alan's white bell from the Friars call him up and say Alan he had written Billy Crystal's show with him 700 Sundays and he said I'd love to work with you on this and at the time it was going to be a one-person show about food eating and men because they're all intertwined so he we started writing and it's basically Alan asking really hard questions 
and history and us writing it completely seriously because he goes, trust me, the laughs will come. You're funny. But we have to write the truth first. Best advice ever. We write this one person show. It ends up really funny, but really emotional. I start workshopping around the country. It's getting all standing O's. My father starts to have the hospice thing. I said, oh boy, I'm not interested in anything anymore except my dad. I quit everything for about six months. And then when I came back after my dad died, I'm like, that one person shows good, but it doesn't say everything I want to. And I go, it's going to be better if I include other types of women with other food issues. So the anorexic, the girl who can't gain weight, the girl who's happy fat, and then myself. So I wrote it into a play and lucky enough, I took my part of the one person show that was about food, wrote these three other characters, wrote monologues for each of us, then conversation. And I was just lucky enough to attract dramaturgs and people from Yale School of Drama who I had studied with a little bit there for six weeks and go, oh, I can actually do a play. So now I think it's really resonating because all women are represented in it, not just me. But that's my journey was one person show, then play, then polish it up and make it really sing. Awesome. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names ah. and you tell me anything that comes to mind. Okay. Could be short, could be a story, could okay. be one word. Okay. Betty White. Oh my God, I love her so much. She's a two, two, true lady. When we were getting our makeup done at the uh, Pam Anderson roast, she actually, you know, William Shatner roast, she didn't even bring her own makeup artist, and she's super rich and famous. So I thought that was very humble and down to earth. Funny as F, showed up for her rehearsal at the roast, which is why she killed, because some of these celebrities don't rehearse with the teleprompter and bomb like the situation in uh, the Donald Trump roast. So I say Betty White, die already, so I could do that SNL uh, old lady spot. Cat Williams. Oh, I don't really know him, but I heard he took the roast very hard when he uh, hosted the Snoop one. No, excuse me, the Flavor Flav one. And um, he took offense that we called him short. And I'm like, have you seen a mirror? <laughs> and also, I think he's a little mentally ill with these guns. I don't know. These black people are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no one would know more than you. That's right. Seth MacFarlane. Oh, I think he did a great job with the two roasts. I love that show Family Guy. Um... I, he can sing, and I called him a big fag, I know, because he sings show tunes, but I think he gets the ladies. Hmm. Sarah Silverman. Oh, my God, I love her. And can I tell you my fondest memory of, of her, and you'll, she'll never even remember this. I was doing this show right after the Chevy Chase roast um, for Comedy Central. It was like a stand-up year-end thing. Uh, something by Joel Gallen produced it. And I said a joke, and Sarah was dating Jimmy Kimmel at the time. I came off stage and she goes, oh my God, I just called Jimmy and said, you're not going to believe what Lisa Lampanelli just said. And we were both laughing so hard. And I'm like, oh, she knows my name. Like the fact that I'm an unknown kind of, and she's who she is for her to do that. I said, I'll always love her and beautiful. Can I tell you something about her? I think it's more difficult for a beautiful woman to make it in stand up because women in the audience feel threatened. Her, Whitney Cummings, this is a hard situation for them because they're like models. I'm sorry. I've seen pictures of Sarah Silverman. She looks better than Audrey Hepburn. And I said, that's a star. That I feel I'm, I was almost blessed with the fact that I was kind of funny looking because I never threatened anyone. Maybe the other fat, ugly chicks in the club. <laughs> no, I'm a gorgeous woman, as you know. BT Comic View. Oh, God. That was insane because 
I'm sorry not to stereotype, but when you do a black television show, they run late. <laughs> By the time I taped, it was the second, they taped two in a day. Mine started at 1130 at <laughs> night and was supposed to have started at seven. That's all I have to say. Plus the host mispronounced my name and they had to dub my name in later, <laughs> but I killed it and got a standing ovation from the ovation from the 30 people still left there. What can you do? Pamela Anderson. Oh, well, that's one. When you asked about hurting feelings, that's a big story. I've never told anyone about me backing off from jokes. This was like, I almost cried. Well, they're doing the Pam Anderson roast, and I have to go last. And I'm noticing there was a comic who got up who shall remain nameless, but he got cut out of the roast, so it doesn't matter. He did about 10 to 20 jokes about her undercarriage that were so unfunny and blatantly hurtful. And I saw that look girls get where they're like kind of being bullied, but laughing it off and like that sad smile thing. And I've heard like blinking too hard, like it might've been tears and I'm looking at her and I'm like the fat chick. So I'm like all sensitive. So I'm looking at her going, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God. So he gets off and we go to commercial and Tommy Lee says to her, like he mouths, are you okay? And she like shakes it off and she's like, mm hmm, yeah, I'll never get a date again, I guess. And I knew she was really hurt. I was so pissed. I go through my script. I crossed out every Pam Anderson joke about boobs, who were, or her undercarriage. And I did two jokes about her that were very mild. And I got the rest of them all back. And I felt like that was my thing of where I can sense if you're upset and I go, I jump off you. So, this is an answer to your other question. I'm not a hurtful person. I'm a sweetheart <laughs> of a gal. But I felt she was hurt, so I, 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 I thought I helped her out a little bit. Awesome. Jeffrey Ross. I love him. Big, ugly Jew. <laughs> but no, one, one thing about Jeff, biggest heart in the world. And, you know, he, he just, he always kills at those roasts. And he always makes me very nervous because he goes, like, about as far as you can go, like I do. <laughs> And I always worry about that. And I'm like, but they always love him. But God, he's ugly. <laughs> I mean, he is the most unfuckable. He makes Dave Attell look appealing. But he gets all the beautiful women. And I'm still fucking fatties? Forget about it. No, he's, he's terrific. And honestly, biggest heart. He reminds me a lot of Rich Voss. You know, Rich Voss never had the level of success he probably wanted. But boy, that's a guy who, if you hurt, if he hurt your feelings, he would sense it and come up and apologize. And he's done that to me many times. And he always says, look, if I hurt you, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I always said on his movie, I said, you're vulnerable. And it's that lisp. That's why people love you because, and he knows it. He can use that to make people know he's not perfect. And I go, that's a mensch right there. So Rich Ross and Jeff Ross always have a nice place in my heart. First moment you felt vulnerable. In my whole life? Well, I remember my sister, that little bitch. <laughs> when I was about eight, maybe, no, probably six, I had a teddy bear who I loved. And I was pissed off that my mother was mad at us about something. And I was outside with my sister. And you know how you think you could team with your sister and brother? Well, I'm standing there and I said to my teddy bear in front of my sister, I go, Come on, Teddy. Mommy doesn't love us anymore. 
Do you know my C word of a sister goes in and says, mommy, Lisa said you didn't love her anymore. And I get yelled at for saying it. So I'm like, all right, you know what? Now I can't trust neither of you still, <laughs> but I have that bear still. <laughs> Whitney Cummings. Oh, I love her. Whitney put me on her sitcom. Let me tell you something about my acting back then. Terrible. And let me also tell you another thing. I couldn't memorize for crap. She let me have a, a, uh, What's that thing that you hold a clipboard because I was coming into the house to do an inspection. So she let me write my lines on there so I could look down like Estelle Getty in Golden Girls where she wrote the, the, her lines on the bananas. Let me tell you this. This Whitney Cummings gave me a shot. That's so not Amy Schumer. Same thing. They both put me on their shows and I go, that's a real lady. Isn't that a mensch too? Absolutely. I think these younger women comics care about other women. And even, you know, other men who haven't made it yet, they really try to help you. And I'm not ever going to be the biggest star. I'm never going to be the funniest, the prettiest, the skinniest. But the nice people end up liking me and helping me. Howard Stern. Oh, my hero, my personal Lord and Savior. Because if I hadn't appeared on his show, he's like the Johnny Carson of uh, he back when I did it, when I started in the right after the Chevy Chase roast. And I've continued up until a couple weeks ago being on his show. When he used to let you stay for the news, you knew you made it like when Carson asked you to come over and sit on the couch, which was a dick move on Carson's part anyway. You know, he just had to have power. But anyway, um, Stern, there's been no bigger gentleman in my life. And I always help out on the North Shore Animal League Gala. I hosted it last year. I always do the red carpet and publicity and stuff. This guy cares and he's evolved. Four times therapy a week, he's become a real man. And I go, if he can work on himself, I can too. Your surgery. Oh, my God. Thank you, God. I love it. Uh, after the first two weeks of nothing but clear liquids, it's heaven. Our audience don't know the process. So in oh, mind well, what it is, it's a surgery, a weight loss surgery called the gastric sleeve surgery. Why do you decide to do it? What happens? Sick of being the fat chick. Sick of being that chick who couldn't handle their issues and was depressed all the time. So I said, I bet if I take the fat, the physical fat out of the equation and work on the insides, I can have a do-over and really figure out how to eat like a person should in their life. So you weighed... 248. 248 at your highest point. Yep, yep. So you have the consultation. How much does the surgery cost? Well, if you... My doctor's great because he takes most insurances. So Jimmy Big Balls... His surgery is completely paid for by insurance. Jimmy Big Balls? My ex-husband. Was that because of physical or mental? What, the balls? Yes. Oh, the balls are just huge. They're horrible. That's the nickname Howard Stern gave him was Jimmy Big Balls because his balls were, Barry, I'm not lying to you. They are the size, I would say like this, like one and a half of these. The size each, of a microphone. Each. Really? Like the big mic. Not the Gene Rayburn skinny in the <laughs> 70s match game one like this. But Jimmy's great. But he got the surgery. It was about, you know, free. But mine, I wanted to pay for it myself and not pay, not wait the six months you're supposed to wait for. And I paid like 14 grand. It's going up a little, but that's reasonable for somebody who really has an issue. So you get the operation. Nope, they don't do anything. They don't insert anything. What happens? They go in laparoscopically, five little holes. Literally, say this is your stomach, a microphone. Cut out 85% of it. No rerouting, no restructuring. Basically, your stomach's small again. Eat smaller portions. For the rest of your life, if you don't stretch it out like a lunatic, you have to eat very small portions the rest of your life. So 
when you got out of the hospital, you probably lost about 20 pounds anyway. Right. The first week I lost eight pounds because you can only have clear liquids. But then in nine months, I'd lost 100. Then a couple more months, I lost the additional seven. So, yeah, you lose fast. And then you have to keep it off. That's the whole trick that nobody remembers. But I used it as a do-over and go, let's pretend I'm 19 again with this weight problem like I got in high school. Now let's eat like... Hand, like you handle yourself emotionally other ways by feeling. So you feeling. can get heavy again, yep. even though you have the sleeve. Yep. And I'm not gonna, I refuse because I am like an adult. If I want to keep in shape, I got to exercise. I can't eat my feelings. I can't, you know, go to food if I'm unhappy or sad or whatever. And that's hard, dude. I don't have any other coping me mechanism. I don't drink. I don't have, I've never done a drug except pot once. I not having sex with men. I don't have boyfriends. I'm like, where do I go with my emotions? I have to feel them. Do you know how hard that is every day? I'm not complaining. I'm like, thank God I'm doing it. But it blows. You got to cry a lot and talk things out. That's why I wrote a freaking play to get it all out there. <laughs> Seriously. I was like, that's all I can do is put it out there every night. Wow. Last one. Donald Trump. Oh, my God, Donald Trump. Well, that's what my favorite line in my whole play, I think, is that when I had my weight loss surgery, my hair got thin and fell out because that's what happens. I go, I look in the drain every morning and see Donald Trump's nutsack. <laughs> <laughs> but Trump's like mental. Like Trump, I said on the radio the other day that Trump was why I got the surgery because during the Celebrity Apprentice, he complimented every woman except me. And I was like, I, you know, come on, throw me a bone. I'm a woman. <laughs> but honestly... He's become such a crazy person, but he was always nice to me. So I'm like always on the fence. So I usually just make fun of him a lot in my show and figure I don't really talk trash politically, but he's a good sport. Let's leave it at that, that I've roasted him twice, once for Comedy Central, once for the Friars, has always been a good sport. And I don't think we'll ever be really true friends, but I think I might vote who knows how in the coming election <laughs> i guess you could probably guess last questions your greatest holy shit moment something that might be a highlight chapter of a book you write or something in your life that would blow people the fuck away i don't think this will blow anyone away but it blew me away um i want i was booked to work the sacramento punchline which is a very respected club but it's still just a club one weekend and I show up on the Wednesday and they say, can we add a third show Friday, a fourth show Saturday and a second show Sunday? I'm like, why? They go, because you're sold out. And I go, why? And they go, we don't know. <laughs> and I go, what's going on? I call my manager and she goes, oh my God, the Pam Anderson roast aired. And now everybody knows who you are because everyone watched that roast to see how nutty Courtney Love acted during that roast. So to walk into a club thinking, oh, we'll have 30 on Wednesday. We'll probably have 40 people on Thursday and have it completely sold out and add three shows. I was like, I made it. So that to me was a holy crap moment because I'm like, I can parlay this into bigger things. And then I ended up in, you know, big theaters all the time. So and also my funnest moment ever was on, when I did Radio City, I had a rocket who coached me how to dance for six months so that me and my niece, who's a dancer and her friend could do like a funny dance on the show and it felt so good it's like heartfelt to me anything any good memory i have has to do with family it just has to do with them awesome your proudest moment in show business oh in show business probably hearing when people say 
I got the surgery because of you and now I'm down a hundred pounds or, Oh, I, um, I was crying all through your play or even during standup when they say, I actually had a really nice moment where a woman said to me, you're the first time I've laughed in five years since my son died and he was five and she was crying. That was really proud. That was, that's years ago. That's like 20 years ago and I still remember it. So it must've been pretty big to me. So those are the kind of things. It's never about money or power or anything. Like I was nominated for a Grammy twice. The only reason I care is because I took my niece and nephew this year and we dressed, we had the tailor make us outfits from my dad's suits and we all looked so cute and like, so we sort of had my dad with me. Those are the things I like. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself. to Pittsfield, Massachusetts, those mother effers. I'm telling you, that's the only disappointment. But see how it ends up to never be a disappointment. I was a little disappointed when my show with Jim Carrey didn't, we got bought by HBO. We had this contract, the thing built in the contract where if they didn't make the pilot, they had to pay us. Pay or play. Which guess what? You're got to be pretty bad when somebody pays you not to be on TV. That's what I would always goof on Geraldo. I'd go, they pay you not to be on TV. But I think at the time I was a little sad, but then I remember going, oh, that gives me more time for, and I forget what else it was. Oh no, it was planning my wedding, which was the best. There's only two things in my life I've loved every minute of. Well, three things, taking care of my dad, um, planning my wedding, even though I'm divorced and doing this play, there's nothing else I've loved every minute of. So I think the Jim Carrey thing was a little disappointing because like, oh, I want to have a TV show on HBO. But then it was like, oh, but I have time to plan my wedding. I've always kind of made it into something I, I had fun doing. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a small town in Connecticut or wherever mm-hmm. it is to be able to get to the highest levels? Of your profession. I mean, two things I operate on is, it sounds corny, but fear not. Because what's the worst thing that can happen? Think about it. Like if I had done that open mic and I completely sucked and quit, eh, so. If I sold out Radio City and whatever the one was, Radio City and Carnegie Hall, and then I'm a loser and don't sell any tickets anywhere, eh, at least I did that. If I wrote a play and no one ever produced it, say the WP was like, we hate your show it's not going up. Yeah, so I wrote a play then. What's always ask yourself, what's the worst that can happen? But then unlike other people do it anyway, because a lot of people go, Oh, that's the worst thing that I'm not doing it. Who cares? We're going to die. Just do it. Who cares? Nothing bad can happen to you. Lisa Lampanelli, you are a force. Yes, honey. This has been so amazing. Thank Thanks for you everything, so man. So much. You're so great. And if you didn't know earlier on, I'll just give you the plug again. Yes. This next week, Lisa will be here with her critically acclaimed play Stuffed at the WP Theater here on 76th and Broadway. It's a beautiful place. She's an amazing performer. And even though I haven't seen the play yet, I'm telling you right now, if it's anything like she is as a person and as a performer and stand-up, you're in for an amazing ride. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, my dear. Yay! Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary. And you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer. And 
It's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Troy Warner from Duval, Washington. You are a JFK winner. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right. Landing on Birth Love, July 25th, 2014. Heading reads over the road truck driver, five stars. He writes, terrific show with details about the business part of Hollywood that you don't hear anywhere else. And everyone in America loves a journey to success story to keep the hope alive. Well, thank you so much, Birth Love. You are a winner. All right. And as always, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain, it's never quite over, so it all feels the same. Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.